listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Daniel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 28. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 100 20 satraps stationed throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, including Daniel. To these the satraps gave account so that the king might suffer no loss. Soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the presidents and the satraps because an excellent spirit, oops, sorry. So the president and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom. But they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. The men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So the presidents and the satraps conspired and came to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to anyone divine or human, for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish the interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and interdict. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room, open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. Then they approached the king and said, concerning the interdict, O king, Did you not sign an interdict that anyone who prays to anyone, divine or human, within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions? The king answered, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they responded to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the interdict you have signed, but he is saying his prayers three times a day. When the king heard the charge, he was very much distressed. He was determined to save Daniel, and until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. Then the conspirators came to the king and said to him, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no interdict or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. 
Then the king gave the command, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, May you, your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No food was brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. When he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you faithfully serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel then said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no wrong. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king gave a command, and those who had accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and break all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples and nations of every language throughout the whole world, May you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. For he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. And thank you for that reading, Luann. So, before we dive into this um, beloved children's story, I think we should probably address what is, I'm guessing, going to be the most glaring issue for many of us, and that's the terrible act of violence that this story ends on. Can we talk about that for a second? Um, this is Daniel in the lion's den. Like, we know this one, right? We remember this one from Sunday school. This is probably one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. I'm named after this story, all right? <laughs> Every children's Bible ever made has a version of this story in it, but they usually leave out that part at the end where Daniel's accusers, along with their wives and children, are thrown to the lions because it's awful. If I know this church, and I think I know you all pretty well by now, I have a feeling a lot of us are going to take issue with that part, and rightfully so. First thing I want to say um, is maybe obvious, at least it, it should be obvious, but as followers of Jesus, we can in no way affirm what happens to Daniel's accusers and their families. Like, this isn't okay. 
Daniel's accusers didn't get what they deserved. Their families certainly didn't get what they deserved. Um, And as a people commanded to love our enemies, this should not sit well with us. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that when the Bible depicts this kind of violence, it is often being descriptive rather than prescriptive. Which is to say that oftentimes, I think this is definitely true in this story, the Bible shows this kind of violence, but it doesn't necessarily affirm it. There's no attempt to justify what the king does to these men and their families. We don't get like a little bit of narration saying that God was pleased with this. God doesn't tell the king to do it or praise the king for doing it. God doesn't speak at all in this story, actually, which is interesting. And we don't even get any sense of like satisfaction or approval from Daniel. If anything, we've learned up to this point in the story that Daniel is the kind of person who loves his enemies even when they try to kill him. Just because the Bible portrays violence doesn't mean that violence is being affirmed. It's kind of like in movies when like bad guys do terrible things. No one assumes that the filmmakers are in favor of the bad things that the bad guys are doing, unless it's maybe Quentin Tarantino or something. But like bad guys in movies do stuff all the time that are, that are terrible, and it's so that the viewers understand just how bad they are. And kings, especially in the book of Daniel, are bad guys. We've seen kings in this book throw people into ovens. We've seen kings order people to worship them. We've seen kings have uh, bad dreams and then order mass executions. The kings are not our friends. Kings do violent things. And the Bible reflects that reality because it was written by a people who were often at the receiving ends of royal violence. So that's what I say about that. Our stomach churns at this stuff, and I think it's supposed to. A second issue, though, that I want to dig into, and this is going to be the focus of our time here today, has to do with this idea that God is in control. God miraculously intervenes in this story to save Daniel from the lions. The book of Daniel is filled with all sorts of divine intervention. We've talked about this a lot in this series, this idea that God is in control. God's the one who handed Jerusalem over to the Babylonians. That's like the opening of the book. Um, God speaks to people through dreams and visions. God uh, afflicts Nebuchadnezzar with madness. God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And in this story, God saves Daniel from the lion's den because God is in control. Now, I've gotten some great questions from you all throughout this series. I think we've done like three Sermon Talkback videos already. We've gotten so many questions. You can check those out on our YouTube page. But the single biggest question I have received over and over again from multiple people throughout this series has to do with this notion of God being in control. If God is in control, why does bad stuff still happen? If God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, why didn't God save my friend with cancer? These are hard questions. There's no getting around them or like papering over them. This is tough stuff. And I think the way we talk about these stories actually makes it worse. With Daniel and the Lion's Den, we usually talk about this as, a, as like a story about Daniel's faithfulness, right? 
God saved Daniel from the lions because Daniel was faithful. So if we are faithful to God, God will protect us as well, right? That's how we teach this story to children. I know that's how I learn this story. But then inevitably, tragedy strikes. The worst happens. We endure some sort of suffering and God doesn't save us. And that's when the questions come. Why didn't God save me? Was I not faithful enough? Does God not care? Is God even real? Is this just a bunch of fairy tales? I was wrestling with all that as I was reading the story over and over again this week, but then I noticed a detail in this story that I'd seen before, but it never really struck me the importance of what this detail was trying to say. And it's the fact that Daniel didn't just pray three times a day, he prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem. Check this out in verse 10. Although Daniel knew that this order from the king had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him just as he had done previously. I've heard this story a million times, and this is a pretty famous part of the story. I can remember uh, a children's Bible I had growing up that had a picture of like Daniel praying by a window facing Jerusalem but that never really meant much to me before. I just assumed it was something kind of like, like Muslims praying toward Mecca. I didn't really grasp the significance of it. Because at the time this story was written, Jerusalem lied in ruins. It had been destroyed 60 years prior by the Babylonians. Remember, Daniel's in his 80s at this point in the story. He's been in exile for 60 years. He's not going home. He was taken away from his home as a young man, forcibly relocated, put into forced labor for the same king who destroyed his people. Daniel lost his home, his country, his people, probably lost his family. And yet every day, Three times a day for 60 years, he stops, he turns toward Jerusalem, and he prays. He prays facing a city that lies in ruin and a temple that is no longer there. And that's when it hit me. Daniel in the lion's den is not a story about a guy who proves faithful and so God keeps him from suffering. This is a story about a man who has already lost everything and yet somehow he still puts his trust in God. See, the ancient Israelites believed that God's presence resided in the temple and not like in the figurative way we talk about God being present in sacred spaces today. They thought God literally lived in the temple. To go to the temple was to stand in the presence of God. So if the temple is still standing, God's in control. If the temple is still standing, that means God is with us. We can go visit God if we want. But this is a story about a group of exiles who discovered that God was with them even in Babylon. The temple lies in ruins, but God is still in control. 
We are far away from our homes, far away from where we want to be, but God is still with us. Look at all the examples in this story. Look at how many times it's affirmed that God is with Daniel. When the bad guys find him praying, he's praying and seeking mercy before his God. When the king throws Daniel into the lion's den, he says, may your God whom you faithfully serve deliver you. The Hebrew there could also be translated, your God whom you faithfully serve will deliver you. You could read that either way. When the king rolls back the stone the next morning, he asks if, did God show up? Was God there? Daniel reports that God sent an angel to close the mouth of the lions. God was with Daniel as a youth in Jerusalem. God was with Daniel when the worst happened and he lost everything. God was with him for 60 years of exile and God is with Daniel in the lion's den. This isn't a story about a God who keeps us from suffering if we're good enough. This is a a story about a God who shows up in the midst of our suffering. One of the people who has uh, most shaped the way I think about God is a guy named Jürgen Moltmann. Great name, by the way, Jürgen Moltmann. We got his picture up here, he's adorable. This, guy, this guy's sort of a hero of mine. He's a German pastor and theologian, still living, uh, but he's well into his 90s at this point. And he didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, Moltmann's upbringing was thoroughly secular. God was just sort of a fairy tale for weak people. Uh, God was something that people looked to for deliverance and somehow never found it. That's the picture of God that he was given as a kid. But then when he was 16 years old, Jürgen Moltmann got drafted into the German army, and this was at the height of World War II. He's 16. He got stationed at a base where he worked building bombs and other armaments for the army, and after about a year or two, his base was bombed, completely uh, destroyed, and he was the only survivor. His best friend from childhood, who had been drafted with him, was torn to pieces right next to him. Moltmann was taken captive by the British. He became a prisoner of war. And while he was in prison, he learned that his hometown had been firebombed, completely destroyed. He wouldn't find out for a couple of years if anyone from his family survived. Germany lost the war, thank God. And then the pictures started coming out from the concentration camps, the mass graves, the gas chambers the horrors of what his people had done, what he had been a part of. And in the the prison he stayed in, the British soldiers hung the pictures all over the walls so that day and night they were surrounded by their shame. But there was a chaplain in the prison who gave Jürgen Moltmann a copy of the New Testament which he had never read before. And he read it, and he got to the part in the Gospels where Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Moltmann writes that at that very moment, he knew he had found a comrade. As he looked back over his life, he realized that in all those moments, the good and the bad, the ups, the downs, the trauma of war, the horrors he had experienced, 
there was a presence that was with him through it all. A sort of still, small voice that comforted him, strengthened him, grieved with him. Jürgen Moltmann gave his life to Christ in that prison. After the war, he became um, a pastor and a theologian in Germany, went on to write amazing books about God and suffering that I would read decades later. How do we cultivate an awareness of God's presence in those kind of times? How do we cultivate an awareness of that still small voice that never leaves our side? The God who is there even in the midst of our deepest pain. Just about every Christian I've ever met has some kind of story about like a moment that God's presence felt real to them. Could have been uh, an interaction that they had with someone, uh, maybe a spiritual mountaintop experience like at a worship service or a, a convention or something. For some, it's a voice. For others, it's a light. For some, it might be a slap in the face. These moments are powerful, but you can't cultivate an awareness of God's presence based on mountaintop moments alone. They're too fleeting, too rare. We need practices that center us on God's presence each and every day. For Daniel, it was stopping three times a day and praying facing Jerusalem. For Jürgen Moltmann, it was reading through the Gospels from a prison cell surrounded by his own shame. We have folks in our church who do quiet time every morning, a sort of devotional. We've got others who wear prayer bracelets and other kind of tangible reminders that God is present with them. But if you don't already have something like that, or if maybe you're looking for a new practice to cultivate an awareness of God's presence, especially as we're entering into Lent, then I wanna encourage you to check out the Going Deeper section for this week. Every week on our website, uh, we put together a Going Deeper prompt. Uh, It usually is just reflection questions based on the sermon. You can find it at brockportfirstbaptist.org slash online worship. Just download the order of worship. You'll find a little button there, and uh, the Going Deeper section is right at the bottom. And for this week, We have a practice there called breath prayer, and it is a simple way to cultivate an awareness of God's presence. The way it works is you choose a short phrase, usually from scripture, and you split it into like two chunks. And you say the first half of the phrase to yourself as you inhale, and you say the other half as you exhale. Breath prayer, get it? (laughs) And we have a few options, a few ideas listed in going deeper. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Not my will, but yours be done. The idea is to choose a phrase like that, either memorize it or write it on a little piece of paper, and then return to it throughout the day, saying it to yourself, either silently in your head or just a whisper, You can do this while you're out for a walk or doing chores or even during a a hard conversation with a friend. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Not my will, but yours be done. That's breath prayer. 
And I encourage you to give this a try for the week. And as we're going into Lent, this is a practice that you could do for the next 40 days. Lent starts on Wednesday and it goes just about till Easter. But if you're hungry for God's presence, or if you struggle to sense that presence day to day, this is one simple way to cultivate that. Because trials will come. We are going to experience loss. Many folks in our congregation are struggling through loss right now. And even if you are not, you will. You're going to have moments when God feels far away. But if we adopt these sort of practices, things like quiet time, breath prayer, grounding ourselves in scripture, we can develop an almost Daniel-like attentiveness to God's presence, even in the darkest times. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this incredible story of deliverance. We thank you for being present with Daniel in the lion's den. And God, we thank you for your presence in our lives as well. Help us to recognize that presence. Help us to keep our ears open to that still small voice. Lead us to practices that will cultivate our awareness of your work in our lives and our total dependency on you, Lord. Help us to trust you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.